Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and a warm welcome to Money Talk for Thursday the 7th of December. This is your host, Peter Lewis, with a wrap-up of the latest business and finance news. Thank you for listening and for making this podcast one of the most downloaded in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's headlines, today sees the start of the much-anticipated two-day EU-China summit hosted by President Xi Jinping in Beijing. The EU delegation for the annual summit, which is the first in-person summit since the pandemic, will be led by European Council President Charles Michel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. It comes with China running a huge trade surplus with the EU of over 400 billion euros. Italy has officially informed China that it's quitting the Belt and Road Initiative, dismissing fears the move might sour relations and damage the Italian economy. Italy in 2019 became the first and so far only major Western nation to join the trade and investment programme. Prime Minister Giorgio Meloni said Roma's pa- Rome's participation in the BRI was a mistake and it had brought no significant gains to Italy. The Hong Kong government said in a statement on Wednesday evening that it disagrees with the downgrade in the SAR's credit outlook from stable to negative by Moody's Investor Services. The credit rating agency made the changes based on Hong Kong's tight ties with the mainland and what it said was the erosion of its autonomy under the national security law. The United States added fewer private sector jobs than expected in November in a sign that the labour markets may be cooling. Private employers added 103,000 jobs last month. That was below analysts' expectations for a gain of 130,000. And the data comes just ahead of Friday's official non-farm payrolls report. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Christopher Lee, partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. We're also going to look at how Hong Kong's mandatory provident funds have performed this year with Francis Chung, Executive Chairman of MPF Ratings. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page, and on X, I'm at Money Talk R3. In a choppy session, stocks on Wall Street finished in the red on Wednesday, pressured by declines in energy stocks and some mega cap shares. The Dow lost 70 points, that's 0.2%, to close at 36,054. The Dow was up nearly 170 points at its session high. The S&P 500 shed 0.4% to 4,549. The Nasdaq Composite dropped 0.6% to 14,147. It was the third losing day for the Dow and the S&P 500, the first since October for both indices. US Treasury bonds continued their rise and yields fell as further economic data showed the US economy weakening, fueling speculation that major central banks will cut rates in the year to come. The benchmark 10-year yield was down five basis points at a three-month low of 4.12%. The 10-year yield topped 5% in October. Two-year bond rates edged slightly higher to 4.6%. The dollar strengthened against its peers for the fifth time in the last six days. The US dollar index rose 0.1% to a three-week high of 104.16. Gold closed the session a third of a percent firmer at $2,025 an ounce after hitting a record high above $2,100 last week. U.S. crude oil fell below $70 a barrel, closing at its lowest level since June, despite efforts by OPEC Plus to boost prices by promising to slash supply in the first quarter of 2024. The West Texas intermediate contract for January fell 4.1% to settle at $69.38 a barrel. The Brent contract for February declined 3.8% and it settled at $74.30 a barrel. Hong Kong's benchmark stock index rebounded from the 13-month low hit on Tuesday. The Hang Seng Index snapped a three-day losing streak, climbing 135 points or 0.8% to 16,463 after tumbling 4.2% over the previous three days. 
The tech index added 1.8% by the close. On the mainland, the CSI 300 index posted a 0.2% gain after hitting fresh fall year lows on Tuesday. And futures markets pointing to a decline for the Hang Seng index of about 75 points at the open. That's around half a percent. Uh, looks like the index is going to start the day just below 16,400. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this Thursday morning, let's welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. Good morning. And also with us, Christopher Lee, Senior Partner at Faun, Augustine and Alexander Investments. Morning to you, Chris. Good morning, Peter. Hello. Um, let's start talking about EU-China relations. Today sees the start of the much-anticipated two-day EU-China summit. It's going to be hosted by President Xi Jinping in Beijing. The EU delegation uh, for this summit, which is the first in-person one since the pandemic, is going to be led by European Council President Charles Michel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. The EU wants to trade, but not at any cost, with China running a huge trade surplus of over 400 billion euros. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has called for a clear-eyed approach to what she says is China's hardening global posture. In turn, China's concerned about the EU investigation into Chinese dominance in electric vehicles as a result of what the bloc says are state subsidies. And EU leaders are expected to raise the issue of overcapacity in products they see as targeted at European markets when they meet President Xi and Premier Li Chang. The EU is worried China's increasing its uh, its industrial capacity, particularly in renewable energy products, at a time when domestic demand is weak, and therefore China will export that overcapacity to Europe. Um, Andrew, you're in Europe right now. Um, first of all, do you see that that as a as a as a valid concern that uh, China may start exporting even more overcapacity to Europe, and that trade deficit may just continue, or China's trade surplus, EU's trade deficit, will just continue to rise. I find it's very disingenuous, not because uh, they cannot use the excess capacity. They actually, they can try to find a space for the excess capacity. But if, in fact, you are exporting a great deal, it does not mean that you have excess capacity. It means that you're simply cheaper and better quality than uh, than your competitors are. So, I, you know, I think this is this is disingenuous. But having said that, at the same time, the world is absolutely packed with subsidies. The European Union does subsidize, for example, the, the construction of aeroplanes. Uh, United States, under the IRA Act, is a sea of subsidies because the government is paying right, left and center companies to set up microchip uh, uh, factories in the United States. So Europe and China really should be the last two places to accuse each other about government subsidies. <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is so absurd. It will be such an easy discussion to start because both of them are at, up to there in subsidies. <laughs> but it's, it's... So it's China. Of course it is subsidizing the production <laughs> of electric vehicles. 100%. <laughs> but the, the way the, the EU presents it um, is that basically the EU is the only open market left in the world because everyone's putting blocks and tariffs on Chinese goods. So the US is doing it, it says. India's doing it. Other countries around the world are doing it. It hasn't. And that's why China has this huge trade surplus uh, with the EU. What, what do you say to that? Yeah, I was going to tell you, that is just about the worst possible uh, argument that the Chinese can produce to the European Union. They say, look, 99.0% of the whole world is imposing tariffs on us. Why are you planning to do the same? And that's the reason. <laughs> For exactly the same reason, <laughs> the rest of the ninety-nine percent world is doing it. They're all as, as bad said, as each Peter, other, aren't they? Peter, Peter it's, I'm, I'm not. I'm not making this a, a frivolous statement. All I'm saying is, it's a, a rather peculiar situation to see two places that use subsidies continuously to argue that the other other place shouldn't or wouldn't. Mm. Chris. <laughs> Yeah. Chris, what, what, what do you think? I mean, their the, the argument is that um, China is investing now more and more in manufacturing. Um, it hasn't got the domestic demand to, uh, to um, absorb that itself. So all it can do is export um, that overcapacity elsewhere, particularly the EU. That's what the EU says. What do you say to that? Yeah. Yeah, I find this quite laughable as well, just like uh, Andrew and you have uh, been laughing at this. I think 
ultimately, if this is benefiting the average Europeans, whether they are in Greece, like where you are at, uh, Andrew, and also where some of the uh, electric car drivers in uh, the UK, where your home country is, uh, Peter, ultimately, if the Chinese government is investing in these industries and then helping BYD make a better product at a cheaper price and exporting out to uh, foreign countries for a lot of other consumers in Greece and also UK, I don't really see anything wrong with it. I mean, I am a, a capitalist and economist, you know, I think like you, uh, Andrew, I mean, if we are producing a better good that is at a cheaper price, ultimately for the average consumer, what's wrong with that picture, right? So I find that quite laughable as well, because ultimately, I would love to have a BYD car in Europe. I think they are great. And uh, if people cannot afford them in China, no problem. I mean, there are many people in Europe who really want to buy a BYD electric car. Well, that, you know, there is, sorry, Andrew. Sorry, there is, sorry, Peter. I mean, to follow on with uh, what my good colleague is here is, is saying, is this, uh, it is almost a Trumpian argument to say, this is great. Millions of poor Chinese innocent taxpayers are subsidizing the sale of cheap cars to us Europeans. Great. I'll have more of it. Thanks very much. Because if the Chinese are subsidizing it, they're not subsidizing out of thin air. They're subsidizing out of their tax revenues or other revenues. So in other words, you could you could argue just as just as we have just heard, it's a good product. And not only that, but the Chinese are actually Chinese taxpayers taking money out of their pocket to make this cheaper for us. I said, it sounds, sounds a little bit of Trumpian argument here. So is there anything wrong with a 4 billion euro trade deficit then? What if, if from what you're saying, um, both of you are saying really, that this benefits um, Europeans, they can get good quality products at cheap prices. So in that case, why should the EU be concerned about such a large trade deficit? Is there anything wrong with it? Okay. Well, they are concerned because of their own their own production of, of electric cars. And since electric cars is going to be a hot item in the future, then they are, they are very concerned that the Chinese are going to corner the market. In the same way, let's not go too far away. Remember five years ago, it was a horror that the Chinese completely dominated the solar panel market. Mm -hmm. So much so that the Americans took really tough measures on that. I mean, extremely tough measures on that. So, you know, the poor Chinese cannot do anything. Well, actually, the poor Chinese can do only thing they can get accused of is doing things right. And, of course, paying it out of their own pockets. But at the same time, of course, the equally the solar planner makers or the uh, electrical car makers in Europe will say, why can't we ask our own uh, taxpayers also to subsidize us? and make a cheaper product that we can add service it. Sorry, Peter, it becomes, it becomes childish. Okay, literally it becomes the childish argument. Yeah, the 400 billion and uh, some countries have surpluses and some countries have deficits. So, so, Chris, is there, is there anything wrong then with a 400 billion euro trade deficit? Um, is there anything wrong with trade deficits per se, other than, obviously, as Andrew says, what they are concerned about is what it might do to their car industry, which is a huge employer in, in the EU and far too important for the EU to let go the same way that it did with solar panels. But is there anything wrong with having a trade deficit? My answer is no. I don't think there's anything wrong with that trend. I mean, the trend is very clear that, uh, you know, these cars are going to be exporting, uh, you know, to Europe and ultimately to the U.S. as well. I mean, we've seen this movie before, Peter, just like in the um, in the 80s and the 90s, Japanese cars were penetrating into the European market, into the U.S. market, and then Korean cars were penetrating into the U.S. market. And it's just a matter of time that we will see BYDs and other really nice electric cars all across Europe and uh, potentially all over California. Uh, Gavin Newsom has driven one, and uh, he is a big fan of BYD. Mm. Okay, so what can we expect then? Um, can I ask both of you from this summit? Because China isn't going to obviously stop investing in its manufacturing, particularly areas that it sees as being competitive, like electric vehicles. The EU isn't going to end its investigation into what it says are unfair subsidies for uh, for electric vehicles. So, so what can we expect from this summit? It sounds like the, the two sides are going to be in, in intractable positions. Well, uh, you go first. Think, yes, intractable, yes. What's going to happen is, is my, let's say, my uh, 
humble view is that the European Union will take the whole issue to the World Trade Organization, which it is the standard place to do it, and uh, accuse the use of subsidies and threaten that unless this is somehow ameliorated uh, or, uh, let's say, uh, worked out, they're going to impose tariffs. Very straightforward. Standard stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, one 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 World Trade Organization uh, uh, negotiations. And the Chinese undoubtedly will find something else about this. They can threaten China, they can threaten French wines, which is a usual thing to do. Trump did that also uh, successfully in the past. Okay, the the Chinese did it massively on the Australians, and it had nothing to do with the Australians producing cheaper wines, but simply because the Australians said the wrong things as far as Taiwan was concerned. You know, these are these are these are no no accusations of waggling wigging a, a finger, waggling a finger at at the Chinese. This is everybody does that. Mm. So, Chris, Chris, what can we expect? Short term, I know this is a trade issue. At least this is not being positioned as a trade issue. But longer term, I would argue that this is more of a technology and innovation issue, right? So the European governments, I think, uh, could invest more in uh, engineering and technology going forward. There were many European cars that were very outstanding many decades ago. And continuously, I think we can expect that the automakers in Europe invest more into technology and innovation and make better cars so that uh, people elsewhere want to buy them, right? So ultimately, I think in the long run, this should not be just a trade issue. This should be a technology and also an innovation and also engineering issue that the governments all have to think about. Okay. Well, there's been another uh, piece of news from Europe. Italy has officially informed China that it's quitting the Belt and Road Initiative, dismissing fears the move might sour relations and damage the Italian economy. Italy in 2019 became the first and so far only major Western nation to join the trade and investment program, ignoring warnings from the United States that it might let China take control of sensitive technologies and vital infrastructure. Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney has called Rome's participation in the BRI a mistake stake and said it had brought no significant gains to Italy. Um, Andrew, in your opinion, is that true? Uh, yes, actually, it's, it is the, the Belt and Road uh, Initiative is primarily the soft power arm of the Chinese uh, government, and it is primarily to subsidize uh, infrastructure uh, projects in less developed economies. Perfectly right. Absolutely. Everybody is doing it. Okay, now why Italy joined it, I have no idea. Uh, Greece got into serious problems because the main port of Piraeus, which is, let's say, in a way, it is the first stop to Europe if you are coming from Asia, purely a sort of a geographical direction. Uh, now, Costco owns it outright. Actually, sorry, it owns the majority of it, a uh, substantial majority, so that effectively it runs it. And the Europeans have freaked out initially when they found out that China owned a major European port. Um, well, I have no idea what, the, what in God's name the Chinese could possibly do it for military use. Okay, this is completely absurd. But uh, uh, a kind of a incursion into the infrastructure of trade was, was, was looked down. So in the same way, I have no idea what, uh, what the Italians were thinking at the time, what the Chinese are going to invest in, in Italy on what? On uh, hydroelectric dams or ports? It, it just didn't make any sense. Chris, what, what do you think? Was it, was it a mistake? I mean, it was an odd thing to do at the time, wasn't it? And it wasn't quite clear why Italy was doing it. But then it did have a rather odd coalition of left-wing parties running the country at that, uh, at that time. I'm not surprised that uh, Italy is pulling out. If you remember what happened in the early days of uh, Bell and Road Initiative, I think many countries, including the UK and the United States, had accused China for having this uh, economic colonialization policy, right? So they are really using their big, uh, I think, economic muscle to uh, you know, increase their power, soft power, and potentially more than soft power, as uh, Andrew said. So the, the, I think um, you know, the writing is on the wall that uh, some countries are pulling out, and uh, I'm not surprised that uh, Italy is pulling out in this particular instance. 
Okay. Also well, in, a, in a way, as China is concerned, it's much, much better to see Italy dropping out rather than, say, Pakistan or Colombo or, or uh, i try that again, Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lanka, okay, uh, pull, pulling out, uh, where, where they do have invested quite a lot of money. With Italy, it was just a, a political showcase, okay? So if they can lose uh, some countries, they might just as well lose Italy. Okay, let's turn our attention to this region. Moody's has cut China's credit rating uh, uh, credit rating outlook to negative, citing growing risks of persistently low economic growth and the overhang from the crisis in the property sector. Moody's said there was rising evidence that the government and state companies will provide financial support to weak regions, posing broad downside risks to China's fiscal, economic and institutional strength. Moody's affirmed its A1 rating for the country, which was last downgraded back in 2000. 2017. So, um, Andrew, first of all, what do you what do you make of that? Is is it is it important? Do you think the markets did rather focus on it a couple of days ago? Yeah. Well, I'm going to put my my very old and weathered hat of being a professor of economics, which I was several hundreds of thousands of years ago, and point out 101. Okay, China is a major global creditor. Okay, China is a major lender to the world. It is with Japan, the second and first, second and first, I can't remember exactly, holder of uh, United States government bonds. Okay, big external creditors don't go bankrupt. Argentina does because it was, <laughs> it was a big domestic debtor. Okay, so I have no idea what negative means, that China is going to default on its external debt. It can't. Okay, mm. it's a net creditor. Even if it tries to, it can't. What, it's going to default on its domestic debt. It has a fiscal deficit of 3.4%, and it can easily afford quadruple that and raise the money and pay the domestic debt. I mean, that, that, sounds, that sounds completely completely insane, okay, increasing your fiscal deficit in order to pay your fiscal deficit. But I really don't know what does Modi thinks it's going to happen. It is negative. Mm. We don't have the outlook. No, no, no. Show me the money on the table. What will China stop paying its capital and its interest rates on, on its domestic and external debt? Of course it won't. I know, to, so, be, to, to, to be fair, I, don't, I not, don't think Moody's is saying that, though, is it? What it's basically saying is that um, it, it's revised it to negative because um, all this additional borrowing um, is going to have an impact on the economy. Well, you know, on a, on, sorry, I'm very naive here. When I hear the word sovereign debt, only two words spring in mind. Will they pay their interest on time and will they pay their capital on time? Mm. That's it. End of story. Mm. Okay. Most of it can go can go up in the air. So okay. I mean clearly I misunderstood Moody's. They sit there in the bellyache that the economy of China is not particularly good, so let's cut their ratings. Well, okay, fair enough. Mm, okay, well, in, well, Chris, what, what do you make of this? I mean, it's a little bit of a surprise, isn't it? Because we've always assumed, or people had generally assumed, that actually it was quite a good thing for China to increase its fiscal deficit at this time and to uh, borrow more so that it could try and dig itself out of the hole that it's in with uh, local governments and with the property sector. But Moody says doesn't seem to think it is a good idea. So a quick word on Moody, and I'm sorry to say that uh, Moody, Moody hasn't actually told me anything new recently. Um, so I think their action is more reactionary. So if you look at what happened, uh, you know, previously when they downgraded the US government debt, and it wasn't really something new to the market. And a lot of what Moody is doing is potentially just catching up with uh, what the people are really thinking in the marketplace. So on this particular incident, I think Moody is actually playing catch up. So it hasn't actually informed me something new that I was not aware of. So I, I'm sorry to say that I, I don't really pay too much attention to this uh, negative downgrade or uh, this uh, negative outlook at the moment. Mm. It, it's, the statistics say that when a credit rating agency like Moody's cuts the outlook to negative, it hasn't actually cut its rating, it's just cut the outlook. But nevertheless, about two thirds of the time, it does lead uh, to eventually to a downgrade uh, in the debt rating. But as Andrew says, does it, does it matter? I mean, China borrows in its own currency. Um, it's a, a huge creditor. Um, does, does it matter in any way at all? If you're asking me, it's going to be a very short answer. No. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I think just to pile on that, it hasn't actually changed people's、uh, perception on U.S. government debt. I think people still buy and you know hold a lot of U.S. government bonds, despite the fact that、uh, Moody has、uh, actually lower the rating、uh, a few months ago, right?、Mm. Now, Moody's has also downgraded、uh, the outlook for Hong Kong as well, and the Hong Kong government is upset about that. It said in a statement on Wednesday evening that it disagrees with the downgrade in the SAR's credit outlook from stable to negative by Moody's, and the credit rating agency made the changes based on Hong Kong's tight ties with the mainland. And this is the bit that's upset the Hong Kong government. What it says is the erosion of its autonomy under the national security law, contrary to what Moody's has suggested. Its assessment, the Hong Kong government says. They say the implementation of the national security law has put an end to the chaotic situation and serious violence which occurred between June 2019 and early 2020. The government said the move on Wednesday followed a similar change by Moody's on the outlook for Chinese debt, as we've just、um, as we've just discussed. So, Andrew, this is all getting rather political. Is 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 Moody's just really getting into things that shouldn't really it shouldn't really be taking into account when it decides whether or not、um, you're going to be able to pay your debt? Yeah. This is this exactly again. Again, I would have I would have stood and I said, yes, we had the national security legislation, and yes, it has been viewed with consternation overseas. Okay, and yes, both the Chinese and the Hong Kongese government went to a great extent to explain why this was done. And here is Andrew Ferry sitting down and looking at Moody's and says, in which way? The implementation of the national security law is going to stop Hong Kong paying its. Hong Kong doesn't have any external debt, incidentally. Okay, so that's that was another another little bit of a joke, and it has a tiny internal debt. So, you know, what is Moody's doing? Going around saying, "I don't like the way your economy is going," as opposed to saying, "I'm raising a red flag because I believe in three months' time you will not." Be able to pay on time your interest or debt, or the possibility of this happening is increasing. In other words, as you rightly say, it is stepping out, stepping up in an area where I will say, and what this has to do with them repaying their debts, domestic and external, in which way? And of course, I can't give an answer. It doesn't.、Mm-hmm. Chris, is this getting it, too political? It is getting too political. You're right, Peter, and I. You know, again,、um, you know, don't agree with、uh, Moody's、uh, view here. And so, if you look at any major、uh, country outside of Hong Kong, every major country, right, has their has its own national security law. And so, I don't think we should get into the political discussion here. I mean, as、uh, Andrew mentioned, we should really focus on whether they can pay debt on time and whether there's any increasing probability of、uh, not paying the debt. I mean, just a quick word on、uh, national security. I think if you go back and look at、uh, what happened in the U.S. in January 2022, the number of U.S. citizens that have been arrested by the government, and also the number of people who have been jailed by the U.S. government, is a lot of people, right? So, if you look at that as a、uh, you know reference point and use that to downgrade the debt, that doesn't make sense to me. And、uh, what Moody is saying here is that、uh, they are downgrading Hong Kong or they're having a negative outlook in Hong Kong because of NSL. I think we should focus on the economics and not the political situation. Well, if if we do focus on the economics, it it is true, and I don't know if Moody's have I haven't read their whole statement, but I don't know if they focused on this. But it is true that our finances are deteriorating, isn't it? If you look now at the budget deficit, Paul Chan's forecasting、uh, a budget deficit over over a hundred billion dollars, nearly double, more than double what he was saying、um, in his、uh, in his February、uh, budget, and he also says a record deficit next year is almost inevitable. Um, as well, and that comes as our、um, as our reserves are, are dwindling. So, Andrew, should we be concerned by this at all? Well, I'll open my Shakespeare on Macbeth, and I will say, "The lady doth protest too much." <laughs> okay, there are、uh, fiscal surpluses. Let's say there is a fiscal reserve of、uh, nearly eight hundred. To be precise, let me actually read it out for you. Okay, seven hundred and eighty-three billion Hong Kong dollars. Okay, which is it's a reserve, and it is for a rainy day, and it was in excess was about 1.2 trillion, and of course with the COVID, a lot of it was spent. So in other words, the Hong Kong government can well afford run substantial deficits. It's perfectly okay. It is it is all right. And if somebody says, "Oh goodness me, who is going to pay it?" The answer is is if worse comes to worse, we can always dip 
into the fiscal reserves. And in any case, they are not doing all this because uh, they are being loose or they are being irresponsible. They are doing this, A, because they want to maintain a certain amount of expenditures at the time that their major source of income, which is primarily land sales and stamp duty, has actually tanked. So there's a very good reason why they're having a deficit. Mm. The government will say, okay, okay, then we won't have a deficit, then uh, we won't, I'm exaggerating now, we won't pay the civil servants and uh, we will not uh, clean the streets. <laughs> okay. Mm. So... <laughs> So, Chris, what, what do you think? I mean, the budget deficit is obviously going to be way higher uh, than what was anticipated in the budget. Uh, we're going to have a, a deficit next year as well, um, according to Paul Chan. Um, is, it, is it a problem or not? I'm not really concerned about that. And uh, I think, you know, to uh, Andrew's point earlier, we have a huge reserve, right? So if this really increases the probability of default, then I will be concerned. If this really, you know, says that uh, we won't be able to pay our external debt, then I will be concerned. But again, I mean, I am also uh, taking this lesson from the professor here that uh, it doesn't really mean that we won't be able to pay our debt. And it doesn't really mean that uh, we will increase our probability of uh, default. So again, I mean, I don't really agree with Moody's, uh, you know, negative outlook here. Mm. So, okay, you both seem fairly relaxed uh, about, about this and that's uh, not something that we should be concerned about and not something either that Moody should be concerned about. Peter, Peter, I, I, must, I, must, I must state a claim here. Is of course, being Greek, I know all about not being able to pay your fiscal deficit. And my wife is half Argentinian and <laughs> we have clothes in Argentina. And I also know very well what it means. That's <laughs> When I hear that, I go absolutely bananas. <laughs> What's their problem? <laughs> so two countries that are the you world. Want, you, want to, you, want to see, you want to see really not being paid? Okay, you'd be my welcome. I'll invite you to Athens. Or I'll invite you to Buenos Aires, where I'm going in the next month, actually. I'm fascinated with what uh, Mille is doing. I'm not saying I agree, but it's very interesting. Mm, so you, you and your wife, between you, represents the world leaders in not paying their debts. <laughs> serial, default, serial defaulters. <laughs> and we pay our debts. Uh, we are Hong Kong Chinese people. We do pay our debts. Yes, that, that's certainly true. Let me just finally get your thoughts on the on the markets. Two big things going on. First of all, bond yields continuing to fall. The US 10-year now, um, it's down almost 100 basis points from its high just over um, a month ago. But the markets are now pricing in five interest rate cuts from the Fed next year, five now, over 25 basis points each, starting in, uh, in March. Um, I know, Andrew, because we've discussed this before, that uh, you, you don't think that there's any, any chance of that happening. Yeah, my friend, I stay with that, not because I make a position and I don't want to, to go backwards to that, but primarily because I've lost complete interest in forecasting when the Fed is going to cut mm. interest rates. And I concentrate on other things in my life and what I try to tell my my clients. I mean, my, my value added, and I have to say this very carefully, or the value added of anybody else in making a good forecast on when the Fed is going to cut. Okay, I, you know, really, I don't, I don't, I don't feel it has a huge value added mm. into that. But what is interesting is this disconnect between the markets and the Fed now. Once again, the markets are fighting the Fed, aren't they? Five rate cuts the markets are pricing in. It seems to me that something's got to happen if that if we were to get five rate cuts either there's got to be a really serious recession or some sort of um, financial crisis because you don't normally get that in in a year do you that's not normal well i, I speak too much okay chris <laughs> chris <laughs> well i you know want to pick up the point you made earlier about the market is fighting the fed right so five rate cuts i doubt it and uh, again I think, you know, if you look at uh, Jay Powell, he is a, a moderate Republican and he is also a, a Trump appointee. And so the the two things that I would say is, one, we're not done with inflation yet. So I know many people who live in the U.S. that are still suffering every day, you know, dealing with paying $20 for a simple sandwich and also uh, seeing the gas prices, you know, high at the uh, at the gas station. So inflation is not really uh, behind us, per se. That's, that's number one. I think, you know, besides the economics of this, I mean, I'll just make one political comment here, which is that um, 2024 is election year in the United States. And I would be very, very careful uh, if anyone were to advise uh, Jay Powell on whether or not to make any 
rate cuts. If he does, right, he might be actually accused by the Republicans for helping Joe Biden. So mm-hmm. I think this is this is the political calculus that I would bring in here. And uh, economically speaking, you can make an argument that it's probably time to consider a rate cut. But I think the timing is uh, not going to be soon. So in that case, there isn't even a window of opportunity to make five rate cuts next year, because if that's the case, you know, the Fed will want to be done uh, certainly by about uh, the, the end of the summer, won't it? So um, it's going to be very tough. They're going to have to do it at almost every meeting. Bruce, I don't, want, sorry, I don't want to at all appear as if contradicting you, because I think you're absolutely right. But the little evidence that I have read on is, is that the Fed, before or after an election, there is very little correlation of, uh, of increases or decreases in interest rates. In other words, if I see what the Fed did, in an, and we are going back to elections from the 1950s onwards, okay, in the, the, the last 50 years, there was very little correlation between the actions of the Fed and the event of elections. So, you know, I, I would, in a way, I would agree with you because I don't think I don't think Powell will actually say, "Good God, there is an election, so we better cut, or we better not cut, or we better increase or decrease." Okay, the, he will be standing on very very good ground of pointing out, "We do what we need to do. We gotta do what we gotta do." <laughs> That's a good if there note. Are elections or no elections? Uh, okay. I'll, I'm not doing anything at this point. That's my bet. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. Great to hear your thoughts uh, this morning. Thank you for a very lively discussion. You heard Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Christopher Lee, who is senior partner at Farron, Augustine and Alexander Investments. I'm joined now by Francis Chung, who is Executive Chairman of MPF Ratings. Good morning, Francis. Morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well indeed, good, thank good. you. So it's been quite a year, hasn't it, for uh, MPF uh, funds as we're coming to the end of the year. How's it looking? Uh, yeah, it's definitely been a roller coaster. I guess markets have been very volatile this year, so so to MPF um, results. But, um, you know, November was uh, a big relief for MPF members. Um, I think about $44 billion odd. Hong Kong dollars were added in, in investment returns. So um, on a year-to-date basis, MPF generally is back in positive territory, which is obviously good news for members. Now, that's I, I'm surprised because um, a lot of the funds, a lot of people here invest in the local funds, yes. the, the Hong Kong funds, which have had a disastrous year. Um, you know, the US markets have done very well. Various Asian markets have done very well. But the Hang Seng down over 15% uh, year to date. The CSI 300 in China down 10% year to date. So how has it managed to do that? Yeah, no, that's that, that's a good point. I mean, I think that's one of the... the um the key sort of messages that we've uh, been offering sort of members um, and sort of the general Hong Kong public, which is that diversification is important because the reality is most, a vast majority of the um, the investment gains in November and actually throughout um, 2023 have come from developed equity markets and mm-hmm. not local markets. And, and the problem there is that... Uh, um, I think November Hong Kong China equities were flat there well into the the negative territory year to date and the issue there is it's MPF's largest asset class with mm. over 20 odd percent of MPF member monies in that particular asset class so so on one hand uh, as as an industry it's generating positive returns but on a member basis there would be quite a few members that actually aren't seeing positive returns so there's quite a lot of dispersion between the performance of the various types of funds and is there a big dis- divergence as well between the same sort of asset class being run by different managers uh, yes there is and and I think that's one of the um, that's one of the things I think sort of just just members need to be aware of that um, firstly there is significant divergence amongst the asset classes I mean we're talking about Hong Kong China equities just a, a minute ago I mean if you look at the divergence between US equities and um, and Hong Kong equities and the way I frame it is the asset class is receiving the most fund flows at the moment when you compare it to the asset class that is actually the biggest by market share um, the difference year to date is over thirty one percent which huge. yeah which is the second highest on mm-hmm. record and to your point you know within the asset class 
you know, just the way that MPF funds are categorized, you know, you've got active managers versus passive managers. And in the case of Hong Kong China equities, you know, you've got different types of of passive. You've got funds that um, benchmark against HSI, that you've got other funds that benchmark against more commercial indices. So, so you know, you do get quite a bit of dispersion within the asset class. And and I guess the key message there for members is that you have to do your homework in terms of what fund you're investing in. You might think you're investing in one particular fund category, but the way you're doing it could be very different, and that leads to different outcomes. And I, I suppose then that this uh, puts the spotlight on being well diversified, as we talked about this before, but diversification is the best way to, to protect your performance. Yeah, look, I, I can't stress that um, more than we do every month we we put our key messages we focus on what we believe to be sort of truly in the uh, best interests of members and diversification is key i mean it's interesting because as i was sort of coming down to uh, to meet with you I, I sort of just had a quick glance at returns and and i i was somewhat surprised i don't know why because i do look at this quite often but dis core accumulation fund which is the the default fund for people sort of effectively below 50 years old um you know it, it it's up over 10 percent for the year mm. and uh, you know i think that's so this is a fund people. that's like a 60 40 fund in terms of bonds and equities yes and you know the equivalent sort of traditional um, hong kong balance fund return year to date is slightly positive and the reason why there's that big dispersion of returns between sort of the dis core accumulation fund and the more traditional sort of um you know, um, sort of 70-30 Hong Kong balance fund is that the DIS fund is actually better diversified. It has less exposure to local equities and slightly more exposure to to developed market uh, mm. non-local developed market equities. So so that would explain quite a bit of that. And there's some odd correlations going on at the moment because stocks and bonds have been moving together for quite a large, yes. large part of this year, which is unusual. It sort of defeats the object almost of the diversification. But uh, the, the usual inverse correlation is sort of rather broken down, hasn't well, it? Well, that's right. I mean, I, I think sort of, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of all taught that, that bonds and equities sort of provide diversification. And, and, and you know, that relationship does break down uh, from time to time, and we're seeing that at the moment. I mean, indeed, um, if if you go onto the MPF Ratings website, um, mpfratings.com.hk, and you look at our latest blog, um, we actually talk about is you know, we, we have a blog on there right now called Is Music the Next Royalty? Now, it has nothing to do with MPF, but it has everything to do with diversification. And the evolution of asset classes over the last decade or two, and it's interesting how a lot of these new asset classes have come on, and are available freely for um, for retail customers, um, and um, offer sort of diversification within more traditional balance funds. So people must be wondering um, if they have the right asset allocation at the moment. Should, what should people be doing? Should they be reviewing more frequently, maybe, um, how they're invested? How should they deal with this? Because yeah, it's mean, difficult investing conditions. It is. It? And, and look, um, the, the natural sort of default for us would be obviously to seek professional advice. But equally, you know, we are heading to the end of the year and uh, a lot of people have sort of various cleanups. Um, and one of them could be sort of a, 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 a portfolio refresh. And I think one of the most sensible things to do is just to make to, to have a look at your portfolio and to the extent that that your um, your asset classes have moved sort of beyond sort of where you would traditionally hold them is to just do an annual rebalance mm-hmm. uh, because by that way you're sort of you know you're, you're taking profits off the table you're, you're investing in asset classes that um, that probably didn't perform to your expectations over the year and you know um, it's just a good discipline to to rebalance your portfolio Mm. And the big winners this year, of course, anyone invested in U.S. equities has done very well. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, U.S. equities has done well, but again, I think we sort of talked about this last month. But actually, if you if you take a microscope to U.S. equities, the returns were very concentrated there as well. So, mm. so again, you know, it's I think it's that discipline. Definitely seek professional advice. I can't stress that 
um, more than, again, we already have. And I think the concept of rebalancing at the end of the year is a sensible discipline for for, um, for retail investors and NPF members to adhere to. And also stay invested. Being invested in a, almost any type of market is is better than not being invested at all. A, 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 absolutely. And, uh, you know, I sort of shared this anecdote with uh, one of my colleagues who has an opposing view, um, one of our marketing colleagues. And, and I... Um, and I sort of pointed out a particular U.S. stock that um, that is well known for AI computer chips, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, I made the point that I'd sort of bought this stock many many years ago, haven't looked at it, and then looked at it uh, just the other day, and I'm up five times. Now I'm not saying that to boast. My point being is that I've always remained invested in that particular stock, notwithstanding the volatility in that in that in that company, and. Um, and uh, she was rather surprised that you can generate those sort of returns by merely remaining invested. And, and again, I think trying to pick the time and the asset classes, it's a very difficult um, uh, job to do. Mm. And, and most people don't do it. <laughs> and most people don't do it. And, they, and if they do do it, they don't do it well consistently. Are there any um, standout performers amongst the various sort of managers that, uh, that, that you track? Um, look, you know, it's, it's interesting because... You know, so many of the the schemes now have sort of diversified their fund offerings. I mean, if you look at sort of Sun Life Rainbow, for example, you know, they had a gap in European equities, US equities, um, and they launched new product in that space um, in June of this year. So, so all of a sudden for a Sun Life Rainbow NPF member, they've got a full range of funds to actually choose from. Um, and, you know, rather fortuitous, timing-wise, it was rather fortuitous that they, uh, that they launched then. Uh, but I think sort of one fund that has done reasonably well has been actually the Sun Life uh, Low Carbon Global Index Fund. Again, you know, whether you think that that's a result of ESG or whether you think that that's a result of their ability to manage, I mean, it is a global equity fund. It is well diversified. It does play on that um, sustainable investing theme that um, that um, you know the you know the Hong Kong regulators and the Hong Kong government are really trying to encourage sort of you know people to get behind here. Um, and that fund has done sort of exceptionally well in a short period of time. Uh, but, you know, I think the key message that I would give in terms of sort of funds and who's doing well is the first thing is even if you identify a a fund that you want within MPF and however you define that, good performing and you want to jump on that momentum or it's in an asset class that's in a gap, the key thing about MPF is you can't simply go and buy that fund. You have to be in that MPF scheme mm, mm. to then buy that fund. So if you really want that fund and you're really making that decision to to join that NPF scheme, you have to look at the the value for money of that particular NPF scheme before um, actually, you know, mm. uh, joining it to 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 invest in that underlying. Because you're going to be restricted by whatever your MPF provider actually has on offer. Correct, and the and the services that they offer as well. Mm. So, look, looking forward to to next year, are there going to be any changes at all to the scheme that we should be aware of? Yeah, look, I, there are a number of initiatives on the MPFA's um, um, sort of table at the moment. Um, you know. The first is looking at contribution levels, uh, which is obviously a big plus for members because I do think there needs to be a substantial sort of ratchet up of contribution. So I think we're going to hear more about that. Um, The offsetting and the abolition of offsetting um, is well and truly on the table and that's progressing. And again, that's great news for MPF members because, again, MPF ratings being very public in saying that if there's one thing that we're critical of within the MPF system. It's the concept that employers can take MPF con- their MPF contributions for their workers to pay their long service or their redundancy. I mean, that is, mm. I mean, I'm not sure if I can say a joke. It is, and it's not mm. in the member's best interest. And MPF is for members. Mm. So, um, so that's on the table. Um, the third thing is that there's been a relaxation of fund approval rules. So I think we are going to see more funds uh, and interesting funds being approved. Again, I think that's good news for, for members. Um, EMPF, um, you know, the government and uh, and the regulator have been very public in, in sort of updating um, all of us on what's happening there. The narrative there is all about low fees. 
we're not a proponent of low fees um, uh, because, you know, as soon as you reduce margins, well, what are you reinvesting back in? Um, but I think the key thing there is it's not-for-profit and for-member benefit. So the point being is that there are a number of initiatives on the table at the moment within the MPFA firmly with the members' interests at heart. And I think we're going to see that's going to be the key thing in, in 2024. And there has, of course, also been some controversy as well, haven't there, about people going overseas and not being allowed to take their pension contributions with them, as is normally the case. Yes. I think we're talking about the, the UK uh, in particular here. What is the MPFA saying about that? Yeah, look, it's I've sort of got a mixed view on this. Um, you know, putting aside sort of the, the political narrative to it, um, you know, obviously, the easiest thing to do when you're leaving Hong Kong is to tidy everything up and and then you feel like you can leave unencumbered. My sort of response to that is if you are unsure about your MPF, the best thing to do is actually just leave it where it is um, and think about it as part of your overall sort of wealth portfolio. Um, but if even if you don't do that, the most sensible thing to do is just leave it where it is, go to wherever you, you, you're you going to, settle down, and then you've got all the necessary paperwork to then send back to the trustees, um, whether that's your rental agreement, your work contract, everything's in place overseas, you bring that back, and that is then completely unambiguous that you've actually sort of left Hong Kong and you've actually set roots, um, you know, wh- wherever you choose to, 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 to set your roots. So I think if, if there's any ambiguity or, or, or you're concerned, that would be sort of my guidance is just, l- just leave the MPF where it is momentarily, get yourself to where you need to be, settle down, um, get, get your place of residence, get your employment contract, get your utility bills, and then just send it back to the trustee and it's all ambiguous as to, um, um, as to evidence that um, you've, uh, you've left. I suppose if, if you're younger, um, the, the key thing is it hasn't gone away, has it? And if no. you were still living here in Hong Kong, you wouldn't be able to access it yet. No. But it's more of a problem if you're about to retire or have retired well, and you would need this money yeah. and then you're well, look, not being allowed to, to take no, it. No, but, but that's, that's a bit different. If you have retired and you can show that you've retired, you can take your money regardless. So th- that would be your reason for for, um, uh, 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 for for withdrawing your MPF monies. It's on the basis of retirement, which mm. is clearly a, uh, as clear a reason as if you are departing Hong Kong permanently. Okay. So I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good point to raise and a good one to emphasize. Okay. Well, it's going to be an interesting year, isn't it, next year for the MPF uh, scheme and for all sorts of reasons? Uh, no, it, it, it is, Peter. And um, I, know, I know we're probably winding down on time. One quick reminder as we're coming to end of the year, um, end of um, calendar year, end of financial year, heading up to March, you've got one quarter, um, tax voluntary contributions, um, a great um, mm. a, a great tax saver and an opportunity to save for retirement at the same time. So basically, you're paid to save. So uh, for all your listeners who are here in Hong Kong, and working and pay tax, um, have a look at, uh, at um, opening up a tax voluntary contribution MPF scheme. This is a free way to basically increase your contributions. Correct. Okay. Well, Francis, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's Francis Chung, who is Executive Chairman of MPF Ratings. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves in my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Now, there'll be no Money Talk tomorrow. The program will return on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and David Friedland, Managing Director of Asia Pacific Interactive Brokers. Providing a view from mainland China will be Ben Cavender, Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. See you Monday. Money Talk.